We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. This episode of How to Fail is sponsored by Sweaty Betty. Sweaty Betty makes activewear designed by women for women. And you can really, really tell. It is no coincidence that for my mother's last birthday, I got her a beautiful sweatshirt from Sweaty Betty, which had pockets in all the right places. And as you will know, as a woman, if you're listening to this and you're a woman, not many clothes have pockets where you need them. But Sweaty Betty leggings, one of the things that I love about them is the side pocket that you can slip your phone into if you're doing a workout or if you're just going about your day. My particular favourite product from Sweaty Betty are their power leggings. Their power leggings make me feel really held and safe and also motivated to work out because they're so comfortable to wear. They're made out of this buttery soft fabric with sweat wicking and those legendary side pockets. They're also high-waisted. You can wear them all day. They're super flattering and it feels like you're just slipping into a second skin. You can get 20% off all Sweaty Betty items, if you head to their website, sweatybetty.com, and at checkout, put in the code HOWTOFAIL. That's HOWTOFAIL, all one word, at checkout, for 20% off. Thank you very much to Sweaty Betty. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Martine Wright is a dyed-in-the-wool Londoner. She was born in St Bart's Hospital to the sound of the bow bells ringing on a Sunday morning. Her father was a black cab driver. Her life, in many ways, was indelibly entwined with that of her city, and no more so than on the 7th of July 2005, when she found herself on a Circle Line tube train travelling to Aldgate Station. She was sitting three feet away from a suicide bomber. When the explosion went off, Martine would become one of the worst injured survivors of the 7-7 terrorist atrocities. She lost both of her legs and 80% of her blood and waited over an hour for medical help to come. She was in a coma for 10 days. When Martine came round, 
it was to a very different kind of life. There followed a year of intense rehabilitation and multiple surgeries. But this is where Martine's story is truly extraordinary. Undaunted by her life-changing injuries, she went on to become an international sitting volleyball player and represented the Great Britain's women's team at the 2012 Paralympics in London. Since that day in 2005, she's become a wife, a mother, a charity ambassador, a gifted public speaker, a certified pilot and the recipient of an MBE awarded in 2016. The word inspiration doesn't even come close. If I could turn back the clock, I wouldn't change anything, Martine says. I mean, I'd really think about it, but seriously, hand on heart, I don't think I would. Because I believe... I'm a better person from going through that. Martine Wright, it is such an honour to have you on How to Fail. Thank you. Morning, morning. How are we? You all right? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Absolute pleasure to be talking to you today. When I hear that summary sometimes, it does, I suppose, give me goosebumps, really, because, you know, even though the bombings happened 15 Fifteen years ago, it sometimes seems like yesterday, but when you just in, describe what's happened over in my life for the last 15 years, it seems like a film sometimes. <laughs> well, it would make an unbelievable film because you are such a hero. I know you probably don't often feel like that every single day of this lockdown life that we're living, but reading your story is just unbelievably inspiring. And on your own website someone has written that you are living testament to how catastrophic life changes can have positive outcomes. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you. Can you unpack that a bit for us, that idea of a positive outcome coming from something so traumatic? Well, I mean, I suppose this is the belief that I've had really, not for the last 15 years, but probably for about the last 12. I had to, I suppose, find a way of coping with what happened. I mean, you know, me and my family and many families that day were thrown into this this world of nightmares that you would never, ever think that you would be affected by terrorism. But unfortunately, you know, this is the world that we now now live in. I suppose it's been a coping strategy, really, that coping strategy of thinking that good can come out of bad. I think without that, without that thought and without that mindset of being able to deal with life's ups and downs or to deal with my personal experience, which is probably very unique, really, but just to be able to deal with life and for me to deal with what happened to me, that belief that good can come out of bad, I don't think if I hadn't had that belief the last 13 years, I would not be sitting here today talking to you, Elizabeth. And is that a belief that you consciously had to adopt or do you think you've always been that kind of person (laughs) yeah I mean um that's a great question I think it's a bit of both really I remember very early on in hospital and what strength and what resilience really my family gave me whether it's just by holding a hand or for what they what they said I remember about three weeks after it all happened, I'd only recently just come out of a coma and it was my older sister's birthday, Tracy. She's 10 years older than me. And I can't remember getting her a card, obviously. (laughs) I didn't go down the shop, but I did give her a card and I don't remember that. And she only showed me that card a few years ago. And on that card, 
This was the 21st of July, so the bombings happened on the 7th of July. So this is how far it was after. I wrote this card. Well, I didn't write this card. My mum wrote the card because I couldn't write at that point. But I wrote in this card that I went, I love you so much, big sis. But don't worry, this time next year, we're going to be running around the park. Now, I don't remember writing that. And to be fair, I was under lots of drugs, lots of morphine at the time. But I can't quite believe I wrote that. And just by seeing that, I can probably see that whether it was, well, it's a mixture of everything, isn't it? Absolutely everything. Experiences, relationships you have with people. But without all those things and without maybe that belief, I don't think I would be sat here. So I think that I've always been a glass half full, but I truly believe that the people around me and the love and the people I've met and also the real, real crux of it for me that has given me the motivation to move on is realising that I was a lucky one. And there were 52 people that day that weren't as lucky as me. And it was that realisation that how many people died that day. I, I hadn't realised how many people died that day. And that day, I believe, was, was that day that I said, right, we've got to get on with it. And the difference about me and those poor lost souls, those 52 people that lost their lives, is that I was still alive and I had a choice. And I had a choice to live my life. And that's something that I've never forgotten. And that's something that each and every one of those 52 people that died that day are with me, with me every day. And I know that might sound really cheesy, but I truly believe that. I mean, that's why I wear number seven on my shirt. But each and every one of those 52 people have given me strength because I know that I could have so easily been one of those people. And my mum and dad could have been easily one of those people that lost one of their loved ones. I think that's such a beautiful thing to say. And often people refer to this kind of experience or some deep trauma that involves grieving over something that is still part of your life as a living loss. And I wonder if you relate to that terminology, whether you feel there was something there for you to grieve, whether you had that grieving process or whether you're someone who believes that you need to be constantly in the present to avoid being swallowed up by sadness. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. but yeah. yeah it, does. Good. it does make sense. And I think like <laughs> all your podcasts and all the questions you ask, it's not a simple answer, is it? And I think it is a mixture of all those points of whether you have the strength to fight on. I just think it's a mixture of, of all those points, really. How has lockdown been for you, Martine? Because I can hear just from your voice that you are a very outgoing person. And I imagine that you like connection with others. And I, I just wonder how that experience has been for you. This time last year, all of us never thought it would go on this long. And I think as time has gone on, it's got harder for all of us. I think that first lockdown was a bit of a novelty, wasn't it, last March? And now we're this March. Things have got tough. And there have been, you know, like many people, ups and downs. And I suppose I'd liken this to the question that you just asked is you need to experience those ups and downs. So my experience over the last year 
as obviously, like many, many people, there have been good things and there have been bad things. And I think a year on, you realise that there have been a lot of good things. I think right in the beginning, we weren't too sure about it. But yes, I have experienced and I have relished getting to know people on a different level. I mean, a year ago, I'm not being funny, I live in a small place called Tring, but I didn't even know my neighbours last year. And now I share cups of tea with them on a Sunday morning over the fence. And, you know, it's just amazing, amazing things like that. I have been homeschooling, you know, with my son, Oscar. He's actually made that transition this year from junior to senior school. Although I think he's a little resilient person anyway, as a result of, I think, what we've all been through as a family. But like everyone out there, we've experienced good times and bad times. I think you can't get away from the positives that we've all got out of it, whether that is, as I said, knowing our neighbours more. I've been doing Meals on Wheels. I love to cook, absolutely love to cook. I'm in a wheelchair, so I do Meals on Wheels up my road to, to a few elderly elderly people, including my mum, who lives up the road. Yeah, it has been a roller coaster, an emotional roller coaster. But I think, you know, funny enough, what happened to me 15 years ago, I think has taught me how to deal with something like this. And I feel like sometimes, I mean, Elizabeth, you probably hear that I quite like talking, obviously. I love it. You're the perfect guest. (laughs) I do quite like talking. But it's really looking for those positives out there. And, you know, I've spent more time with my family. I see my mum every day. I take her for a dog walk. Make sure I take her for a dog walk because she's been, you know, inside pretty much for the last year. But again, I am obviously a product of the bravery of people that day, of the medical science support that I've received over the last 15 years. And finally, finally, all of us are appreciating what the NHS and the support and the staff do for us out there. But I think what I've learned over the last year and what I learned 15 years ago and what I've learned over the last 15 years is you cannot rush these things you have to experience those ups and downs you can't skip that stage because that's where you get the strength from that's where you get the resilience from that's where you get the understanding from I think that's such a good point that feeling the feelings doesn't make you weak absolutely the contrary it makes you strong because you've looked something in the face and you've processed it and I think also It's like you in a nutshell, really. The way that you have answered that question about lockdown Mm. has made me realise three things about your philosophy. One is to feel the feelings. One is to look for the positives. And one is to think of others. And that's how you seem to have navigated it. And I just think that that's really inspiring for so many people to hear. I think quite a lot of people are doing that at the moment with different degrees. You know, I think this is what has been amazing about covid about this pandemic. You could look at it and see the numbers of people that have died, see the hundreds of thousands of families that have been affected by it. But then also you can see the positives. And I truly believe that this has brought us together as a community, as a nation, as a world. We've all had to go, right, this is my life and this is what I want to do, but I'm going to have to put that aside at the moment. Um, And I'm going to have to look at the greater good. I'm going to have to work with these people around me in order to get over this. And I think that's what's wonderful 
about change, negative change sometimes, is that I believe it brings people together. That's amazing. One of the reasons I was extremely keen to have you on this podcast is because I'm aware that I talk about failure a lot and so do my guests, but failure is different when you experience the world in a different and marginalised way. I can have no idea of what failure is like from the perspective of a person of colour, someone who's homeless, someone who lives with a chronic illness. And I also can have no idea of what it's like to experience failure as a disabled person living in an able-bodied world. And I wondered if I could ask you to speak to that. Has your notion of what failure is changed according to the context of the world that you find yourself in? I think obviously you can't go through what I went through that day without it affecting your life and my life and all of our lives and and all of the subsequent attacks that have since happened over the last 15 years. We can't get away from that. But I suppose, has it changed as a disabled person? I suppose my whole journey has changed. When that happened on that morning, that Thursday morning, in that, I know it sounds cheesy, but in that split second of when that bomb went off, my life completely changed. And as a result of that, I think my motivations, my failures, you know, what I see as failures, did change, did change with me. I am still, in essence, Martine. I might have slightly shorter legs or thinner ankles, as I said. I say prosthetic legs give you really thin ankles. But I have changed. And as a result, I think those failures and what you achieve have failed. I suppose I have changed as well. And I suppose I liken it back to why I went off. And I think a big thing for a mindset or coping with the world that we live in now or have been living or how I've dealt with my life over the last 15 years, I think grabbing opportunities, not being scared of grabbing opportunities is really, really important. And I think I realised this very early on when I was in hospital, because I woke up and obviously I saw that I was someone else. I just kept looking down in my bed at that point and saying, I've got no legs, I've got no legs. I couldn't see. I thought my life was over. That was it. I wanted to die. And I think the hardest thing to deal with for me, and when I speak to other patients in hospital, I'm a mentor now for people, a lot of the time they say the hardest thing to deal with was the memories of who I once was and how I used to do things. And I understand that. And I remember very early on in hospital thinking, my life is over. I'm not going to be able to do this. I was an international marketing manager. I used to travel around the world. I had a big team of people. How was I going to do that now? And I think the main question I had to ask myself is really what I was going to do about it. All our journeys change. Our life changes. We might not even know what's going to happen in life until it happens in life to us. And I think it's just that ability to be able to cope with those memories. And what I decided to do to cope with those memories is I decided to create new ones. And I decided to, I suppose, grab those opportunities that I never, ever thought that I would have an opportunity to do. So, for instance, you've mentioned flying. Yeah, I did go out to South Africa and did about 55 hours of flying, flying planes on my own. But why did I do that? I question myself, why did I do that? Well, who wouldn't want to go to South Africa for six weeks to learn to fly planes? But why did I do that? Do you know why? Because I had in my brain, okay, I might not be able to run for that bus anymore. 
I might be not out. I was obsessed with people walking along the road, aimlessly talking into a mobile phone. I can't do that. If I'm on my prosthetic legs, or if I'm in a wheelchair, especially on my prosthetic legs, you know, the pavement out there is like the Himalayas. You can't concentrate on something else. So why did I want to jump out of a plane? Why did I want to, yeah, go off and fly planes? And it was about creating those memories, but it was really about, okay, Elizabeth, you might be able to run 100 metres or run for that bus, but you know what I can do? I can fly a plane. And it was that strength that if I hadn't gone through this such a negative thing or maybe a failure, a failure to get up that morning on time, I would never, ever have been able to create these amazing new memories and do the things I want to do. So I suppose... I think it did change. I think it did change. My brain changed. My brain had to cope with what happened. And as I said, you know, it's so important to go on those ups and downs because that's when you can figure out what you want to do. But I think a lot of the time it did change as a disabled person because I think my successes and my failures, I was seeing it in a very new light and trying to take that failure as an opportunity, really, as, wow, I've got an opportunity to pick up an MBE, to be awarded the Helen Rollison Award. I mean, you know, if you said that to me 15 years ago, Elizabeth, I would say, Elizabeth, you're off your rocker. I am not <laughs> going to be a professional athlete. I am not going to get an MBE. I'm definitely not going to be a bomb victim. But that story, what happened that day, or my story, or what happened on that event has defined me has defined me and who I am but more importantly the way I've dealt with it it's been my choices it's been the people that love me and support me and ultimately it has been my belief oh I could just listen to you talk for days on end I'm sorry I know I went off on one there didn't I no 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 no. it was amazing and we will get on to your failure to wake up on time that morning on the 7th of July 2005 because it is one of your failures Just before we do, I wanted to ask you about what the world is like and whether it is friendly to disabled people. Because I remember reading this piece, it was an interview with you in a newspaper, and it was a description of your first visit to a disabled toilet. And I think you noticed a pedal bin, didn't you? (laughs) They still do that now. Petrol garages do that now with anti-back. I asked a woman yesterday, I was in a petrol garage, and I'm fine, I can put my petrol in, I don't need assistance, things like that, but mm, foot pump for the anti-back, and I sort of had my mask on, and this woman walked past to go into the shop, and I said, excuse me, could I borrow your foot? She sort of looked at me, and I went, for the anti-back, yeah. Is the world friendly to disabled people? Well, I suppose if there was a yes or no answer to that, I would say no. (laughs) I mean, there are inequalities in the world everywhere. I mean, look what's going on at the moment, what's happening recently. Those inequalities exist within our society. You know, you mentioned in the summary your intro, I am proud to say I'm a Bow Bell Cockney. I was born in London and my whole family born in London. And London is not very good for access at all. That's a huge problem for me sometimes because I do like to still spend quite a lot of time in London but things are getting better but all of us are responsible for this all of us are responsible to communicate that with each other and yeah as you said yeah in an interview I had to point out that yes the first time I used disabled blue that was in the hospital it was actually in the hospital where I was strong enough the first time to actually go to the toilet on my own and and it was quite a nervy experience (laughs) 
I just looked at this foot bin and think it's on my house and thought, oh, I'm going to put it now. And it was like, we're in a hospital. We're an amputee ward. And I've got a foot, a foot, a foot pedal. And I do laugh about it, but obviously, I think in life, again, that's one of my mantras. You've got to smile. You've got to enjoy life. You've got to laugh because otherwise things will be really, really hard to deal with. Do you know, I just, I think that's, I'm so glad you said that about the antibacterial dispensers because I had never thought that. And I think it's so important. We all have a duty to think about other people who, for whatever reason, can't use that or a handle will be too high or just very small practical things that we we all need to think more about. Yeah. But see, the thing about disability, think about race, really, and sexism is, is that we're all individuals. So what I would find hard, someone else might not find hard, or even psychologically, we're all very different. You know, I'm one of those people, I think maybe having an understanding of what life was like before I was disabled. If now someone not necessarily wants to grab and push my chair, because I wouldn't necessarily say that, but if they want to open a door for me, or if they want to go, can I get something from the top shelf? in the supermarket a lot of the time I go all right well you get the top one I'll get the bottom one because I'm good with the bottom ones I don't get offended by that you know that's someone wanting to help and I feel like sometimes we've all got an education you know we're all educators in society you know I look at my son he's 11 he's such an educator just by the experience that he has at home with his mum being a Paralympian, being an amputee. I think all of us have that responsibility to talk about things and educate things, uh, educate people. And actually, I do think the last year, this COVID world where we're not all seeing each other face to face and we're not all in the same room, I feel like on the flip side, it's actually given us an insight into each other's motivations, an insight into people's homes, literally, seeing it through Zoom. And the first question isn't usually now, have you got that email? But it's, how's your family? Are you keeping well? Doesn't your kitchen look nice behind you? (laughs) You you know, it's all those things that I think really have made us realise that good things come out of bad. Let's get on to your failures because otherwise I'll just be distracted for several hours. So, and they're brilliant. So I want to talk about them. Your first failure, which I'm so intrigued by, is a failure to emigrate to Australia. What happened there, Martine? Yes, yes. So I love travelling. I mean, like many, many people now. Hence why, you know, I can't wait for Boris to tell me when I can book my holiday. But absolutely always really, really love travelling. This was back in the year 2000. So this was actually after university, I'd been working for this company in IT recruitment and anyone that is old enough (laughs) to remember the year 2000, we thought everything was going to blow up, especially within IT, as in clocks and computers wouldn't work. Anyway, it was all fine. (laughs) So as a result, I lost my job, really, because there was less jobs in in IT recruitment. Anyway, a very good friend of mine, Joe, who I'd worked with, Joseph, who's like my little brother, he went off and he went travelling and he went through Asia and Thailand and Australia. So I lost my job. So I said, right, I'm going to come over and meet you for three months. So went over there with another, another friend and I met Joseph's oldest friend from school and that was Emma, the lovely Emma. And I'd never met Emma before. And me and Emma just really hit it off. I don't know whether we're the same. I think we're quite, we were quite different people, really. But 
I don't know, do you know when you meet someone, and sometimes it happens in older life now, I think, whereby you haven't necessarily had them as a friend for all your life. But I think as you get older in life, you know people that you like, and you know people that yes. <laughs> you don't mean. There's a kindred spiritness to it. You you meet someone and you're like, oh, yes. And I, I say that as someone whose best friend is called Emma, so I can highly relate. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. She used to call me a songmate, but she was dyslexic. So she spelt it S-O-L-E, which I thought was quite funny. Um, but anyway, we were in Thailand, one of my favourite countries, and spent four months there. Anyway, the end of it, I said to Joseph and Emma, right, I don't know why I'm going back to the UK I haven't got a job I have been to Australia before I traveled around there when I was 21 anyway why don't I come out it's an opportunity to come out and maybe emigrate to Australia so I came back and came back for a few months packed everything up left my rented accommodation moved in with my mum was literally shutting the zip to my rucksack when we got a call at my mum's and it was and I, I believe we live in a very small world. We do live in a very small world. But my sister works for the BBC and her boss, small world, was Emma's dad, a very high TV producer in the BBC. Anyway, we got a call at my mum saying something's happened to Emma in Australia. And it was like, well, what? And Tracy said, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but something is going on. Everyone's going into his office. Something's going on. Anyway. Turned out about an hour later that we found out that um, I knew that she was in New Zealand visiting a friend. It was her birthday. She was at this house of a friend and the family put a big party on for a little party. She wasn't feeling very well. So she said, I'm going to go upstairs and lie down before the party. And anyway, they kept going up to her and said, come on, come down. And in the end, she said, OK, I will come down. And she came down and she was walking down the stairs and then her friend's father was behind her in tragic accident. He fell down and he took her out as well. And she knocked her head and she never woke up. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry, Martine. I had no idea that that's where this was going. I'm so sorry. No. It, well, I mean, I just remember having been told that. My sister said, right, I just found out what happened. As I said, I literally just did zip up to my rucksack and I remember I just had to get in in you know when you have I wasn't in my own house I was in my mum's house I was really upset and I remember sitting in this bath for hours debating what to do obviously my mum was saying you can't go you need to stay here you need to work out what, what you're going to do all I kept doing in my head was I have to go I have to go because if I don't go then that means that I think she's going to die and she's not she was in a coma at that point very ill in a coma. So I made the decision to go. I made the decision to go. I went on Friday, got there. Lucky enough, I had another very good friend that lived in Sydney at the time, Harry. She picked me up. Obviously, I was in absolute tears. And then I spoke to my mum. The first thing I had to do was ring my mum when I got to Harry's house, rang her. This obviously was 24 hours later. And she said, Martin, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, Emma died last night. So that's when I was in Australia and not that my, my, I did feel like my world had fallen apart. I just couldn't be this beautiful girl that had everything in front of her. She'd been involved in something that was so tragic and not in her control. She was such a talented artist, funny girl. And yeah, I had to, I mean, immediately I had to go and see Joseph and 
But I knew I had to go to Australia. I had to go. And I knew if I hadn't said, if I said I'm not going, then that means that I believe that there wasn't hope for her, that she wouldn't have pulled through. But I did go there. I spent a weekend there. And the weirdest and most wonderful thing about it was she was in New Zealand and all her stuff was still in Australia. So she was a photographer, as I said, as well, a brilliant artist photographer. And I had to pick up all her stuff from her flat in Sydney, where I offered to. And I brought it back to the UK. I only stayed in Australia for the weekend. I think I'm the only person that's ever gone to Australia for the weekend. But I came home with Emma's things. And obviously her family had not seen her for the last year because she'd been travelling. And I was suddenly going into this house with all Emma's personal belongings meeting this family that I'd never ever met and they couldn't stop embracing me they said Martine you're Emma's soulmate her little brothers and sisters that were saying you know we've heard so much about you and it was awful awful time but that was something that was quite magical about it but what was magical about it is not realizing that I would be facing my own battles five years later in 2005 this happened in 2000 and the amount of times very early on in my recovery but now Emma is with me she's with me all the time and the amount of strength and resilience she gave me those very early days because again again for me it was counting how lucky I was so I wasn't Emma yeah I wasn't 26 years old I wasn't didn't fall down the stairs and hit my head and suddenly was in a coma and died. Yeah, I did get blown up. I was part of, you know, the chances of me sitting where I was sitting that day, I probably had more chance of winning the lottery than sitting where I was. But again, I was lucky. My brothers and sisters didn't have to go to my funeral. My mum and dad didn't have to deal with the pain every single day of their life because I was a lucky one. And that strength, and what Emma went through and her family and the memories I have of her, again, is one of those things that I don't think I would be sitting here now if the memories and the, the early days in hospital, it was what Emma went through and her family went through that really got me through those tough days. Martine, I'm so unbelievably sorry for your loss and I'm so grateful that you've shared that with us. Let's... Talk about 2005 then, five years later. So by then, are you 31? Five years later, no, no. That's very nice of you to say I was 31. 33, I was born in 72. So I was 33 years old, international marketing manager, girl about town. And London had just won the bid for the 2012 Olympics. Yes. So I remember that time so vividly myself. And and one of your failures is your failure to get up on time on the 7th of July. Tell us about that. Yes, like many of us, we will remember the 6th of July for the day that we all found out that London had won the Olympic and and Paralympic bid. Obviously, the Paralympics wasn't on my radar then, but the Olympics. And me being me, I had a girl about town like many people, you know, the only exercise I used to get at that point was my right arm holding a pint of pints of lager or something like that but yeah I went out and I'm, I'm a Londoner you know doesn't matter whether I'm a Londoner or not but I, I am a Londoner and I was going out celebrating the night before with work colleagues that it was coming coming soon and 
yeah, I probably had too many jars. And I woke up that morning on the 7th of July and my alarm went off and I failed to get up and I hit the snooze button for 10 minutes. And then I got up. I was slightly late. So running to the train station, getting on the train that I usually get on. And like many, many people that morning or many things that happen to anyone in life, it's a series of decisions, choices that you make. So that morning I decided to go on to the Circle Line train and I never usually get Circle Line trains because anyone that lives in London knows that you sometimes have to wait quite a while for one of them and ran up the escalator like I normally did and got off this train, got on the tube and thought, what's the result? I've not had to wait for the tube and sat down at my seat. Now, I sat down at my seat, my favourite seat, which was in the corner of the carriage, and I had time to read my paper. And I remember flicking through this paper, not being able to turn a page without reading something on the Olympics and Paralympics. I remember the excitement. Obviously, I, was, I think I was slightly hung over at the time, but the excitement I was feeling. And I was thinking, I've got to get tickets to this. And literally, probably seconds before the explosion happened, because I remember going into the tunnel and then, and then it happened after that. And I remember thinking, I'm a Londoner. I've got to get tickets to this. I've got to get tickets to this. And I didn't get tickets. Number seven is my lucky number. Again, that's that's a belief that good can come out of bad. And I'm obsessed with number seven now. And I live my life by the power of seven, which I'll share with you in a minute. But it wasn't five years later that I got tickets. It wasn't six years later. But seven years later, I was taking part as an athlete. Now, for me... Some people say things happen for a reason, and I can only believe that that is true. And the amount of strength that that has given me, just that belief over the last 15 years, is unquantifiable. That belief, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there are so many coincidences, connections between the 7th of July, and that was the day that the London bombs happened, and the day before that was the day that we all found out that the Olympics and Paralympics were coming to London. Memories from that day, as I said, I think earlier in the interview, you know, some of them are, well, memories from that day and that hour and a quarter I was down there will stay with me forever. Liz Kenworthy, my guardian angel, called my guardian angel, she's the off-duty policewoman. She gave me tourniquets to put around my legs. I mean, again, it felt like a film, obviously, Everything, once the explosion happened, nothing resembled a tube at all. And I remember Liz coming through after a while and giving me the tourniquets. And I remember thinking, I've seen this in Westerns on a Sunday afternoon where John Wayne does it. You know, I remember distinctly thinking that as I was pulling this tourniquet, this belt round my leg to stop the bleeding. And there's one image that will always stick out, really, and... I suppose, sort of told me what what sort of state of injuries I had. And, and that was when the explosion happened and there was smoke everywhere and screams and, you know, everyone was trying, obviously really disorientated, thinking it was a crash. I just thought it was a crash. And as the smoke cleared, I was trying to get out. I was on the floor, I think, at this point. There was no seats, no nothing, big holes everywhere. And... I remember trying to get out and unbeknown to me, I couldn't get out because my legs were caught up and all the metal 
where the end of the tube basically caved in from the explosion. And I remember looking up as the smoke disappeared. I looked up and there was this shard of metal that was probably about six foot above me. And on it was my trainer. On it was my new Shelto trainers that I put on that morning. They were white and it was covered in blood. And I thought, how is my trainer up there? And I'm down here. And, you know, I didn't really comprehend maybe what had happened, but I just distinctly remember thinking, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. But again, it's funny what you experience within that. You know, I, I talk to many survivors now from terrorism. And obviously back then I was with many other fellow survivors from that day. And we all shared very personal stories and we have a love and a respect for each other that I don't think anyone could ever really understand that we have. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. But these people shared with me, 95% of them, that they had a time that they said goodbye to their family, whether that was on the tracks, that they'd been blown out of the carriage, whether that was in size, whether that was in hospital. But they all said that they had a moment where they said goodbye to their family. I never had that. I never had that. And all I kept saying to Liz Kenworthy, apparently, was, my name is Martine Wright. Please tell my mum and dad I'm okay. My name is Martine Wright. Please tell my mum and dad I'm okay. Again, I don't know how, why I didn't feel like that. I can't explain that. But all I know is that the hundreds of people, the bravery of the hundreds of people that day, whether that was other commuters, whether that was the emergency services, whether that was the firemen, the firemen that had to cut me out. Again, I was the last person to be taken out of the Allgate tube. I saw the paramedic had put me asleep in order to, to get me out, but they hadn't. And I met the fireman after, and he showed me his hand. And he had about two big scars on it, not scars, but little scars, but quite deep scars. And I said, what are they from? He said, they're from you. <laughs> he said, I was there, we had to cut you out, and you were screaming. And I said, no, I wasn't. I said, I was unconscious then. I don't remember you. I don't remember being cut out. He said, Martine, you were, you were conscious, and you were in so much pain that you were digging your nails into my hand. And isn't that Again, amazing what the human mind, the human body can deal with. I obviously could deal with an hour and a half down there, but I couldn't deal with any more after that. And my brain obviously went, stop it, just absolutely stop it. And I had no recollection from that time. And I truly believe that I was put out then, but I wasn't because I met the fireman. Martine, I just, I don't know why I'm crying and you're not. I just, I thought, thank you so much for, um, sharing that and just being able to put that into words I mean I, I feel like I have a, a real responsibility to talk about it I think what happened that day and again I do laugh that I do like talking you know I do like talking but I think just to go through that I have a responsibility to either help people or talk to people or make people realize that things like this happen in life and it's so tough. And there are families still. I mean, look at the Manchester Arena bombings. I mean, you know, families are affected by terrorism every single day of their lives. And I think there's so much focus sometimes on the victim. And rightly so there is. 
but I think your family, your friends, it's such a shocking thing that happens. I mean, I'm not comparing that to a car crash or anything like that. Obviously, that's shocking as well. But psychologically, I think it's such a hard thing for family units to deal with, to get their head round, because it's something that you have no control over. And so as a result of that, I feel like I do talk about it and I do point out what happened and I do point out the positives. And every time I say positives, I think my journey, my story could have been so different. You know, I could have easily, easily been one of those 52 people. And that would have been a completely and utterly different story, obviously. And my mum and dad would not be the mum and dad that they are now because they would be reliving I've met so many families that relive that memory of not knowing what happened to their loved ones on that tube that day. It's so tough. But the main, main thing for me is this belief that I couldn't have done anything to stop what happened that day. And it's really that belief and those coincidences. So whether it was, yeah, the day before, the 6th of July, the 7th of July, and the connections of that with the Paralympics and the Olympics – whether it is the place that I trained for two years before then performing at the Paralympics in London was at Roehampton University. That was facing, directly facing the hospital that I spent 366 days in Queen Mary's. And from, I'm not making this up, from the training hall that we trained in, you could see my window to my room that I spent 366 days in. You can't make that up. The first place I trained in London was, again, right behind Royal London Hospital, where I'm ambassador now as well, but, you know, where I nearly died. The first ever competition we went to, we flew out on the 7th of July, 2009. And just all these coincidences, I don't know whether they're coincidences. I don't know whether they're real connections. I've got no idea. But just that belief for me Just that belief has given me so much strength to get rid of those what ifs. What what if I hadn't done that? What if I hadn't run up the escalator? What if I hadn't swapped on the circle line? What if, what if, what if? For me, it's got rid of those what ifs and to say, this happened. I don't know whether you've ever felt anger towards the terrorist in question or towards terrorism or towards injustice. But if you have, has that belief also helped assuage that anger? I didn't ever feel that anger. And again, God, if I could tell you why, but I don't, I don't know why. I think it was a a mixture of just not being able to comprehend it and maybe not being able to face it in the beginning. But I couldn't get away from these bombers had their own children, had their own wives. And that there's probably someone in their community that has persuaded them to do this and whatever. So I really didn't have that anger, but I did have anger towards the government. And I fought for better compensation, the way that they were treating terrorist victims from that day, especially people that had lost their loved ones. They were offered a ridiculous package through the CICA government scheme. And I suppose I had more anger towards them than I did regarding the bombings. And now, have I ever experienced that anger? No, I don't think I have. And I met the Attorney General and did a presentation at Parliament, but I never, ever felt that that anger, no. So tell me, you said earlier that 
your idea of exercise prior to the 7th of July 2005 was raising your arm to drink a pint. <laughs> so tell me how hard it was for you to go from that to representing Great Britain in the Paralympics. What was that journey like? As I said, if you said to me 15 years ago, this is going to happen, I would have said, Elizabeth, sit down, have a strong cup of tea or something, because, you know, this is not going to happen. That is not going to happen. It's like that question that people ask as well, saying, if you were ever in a wheelchair, do you think you'd be able to handle that? Yeah. And my answer 15 years ago to that was, no, I don't think I would be able to handle it. I don't think I would. Not not unknown what was what was actually going to happen. But yeah, that journey has been amazing, really hard work. And so many times, you know, I won't romanticize about it. There were so many times when I felt like throwing the towel in because this happened in 2005. Then we were lucky enough to have Oscar, my son, in 2009. And then literally sorry sorry martin to interrupt but like how what was your rehab like up to that point and your recovery well i mean the first year i spent in the hospital i mean the first year i used to come back home but not to my home in london or my flat in london you know at my mum's house bless her she used to move out weekends and live with my sister for the weekend it allowed me and nick to have time together but yeah, I was in hospital for over a year and people were like, oh my God, 366 days in hospital. Wow. And I say, yeah, that was hard. But you know what was harder? The day I left. Hmm. The day I left, that was the hard time. Because obviously you'd been in an environment where it's completely normal to have legs and arms missing. And now I was going back to normal life, normal as an independent girl about town. No. Having to move in with my mum in a house that I couldn't even get out of, whether I was in a chair or not. I remember this one day and these are the ups and downs that I believe that if I hadn't gone through them and faced them, I wouldn't be, again, sitting here talking to you now. But I remember this one day very, very soon after I came out of the hospital and I woke up in the morning at my mum's until I went to bed that night and I could not stop crying. I couldn't talk. I just couldn't stop crying. And my sister came to me and she said, Martine, what's wrong? And all I managed to say to her that day, over and over again, I said to her, I said, all I want to do is walk out this house and go home. All I want to do is walk out this house and go home. And that was the hardest time, I believe, out of all of it, because I had to face reality. I had to ask that question. I had to ask my question of, well, what was my life now? What was it going to hold for me? But the most important question was what I was going to do about it. And I only realised that after a while. It was like, I don't know what's going to happen, don't know what's going to happen, but who's, well, who's in control of this? Oh, I am, with the choices I make. Yes, I am a lucky one. I am a lucky one. And I've, I've got many choices I can make now. So I did start a Paralympic sport three months after having a baby. Probably not the Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you're like, it's just unbelievable. So wait, so. Nothing happens in life, does it, at the right time? But at that stage. Life is about. (laughs) At that stage, you've done an enormous amount of physical rehab. And then you've had a baby. We'll come back to Oscar in a bit. But then. How do you get from like physical rehab as part of your recovery to training for the Paralympics? 
it was a big learning curve, Elizabeth, a big learning curve. So I've chosen a sport whereby core stability is a big thing. And actually for me to walk, for me to balance even in my wheelchair or walk on my prosthetic legs, core is a big thing. So, I mean, again, I, I did go back to work and, and I found it just too hard psychologically to go back and do the same thing. So I was definitely looking for an opportunity and started playing wheelchair tennis and realised that wasn't a team sport. So I went to volleyball. And how did I make that transition? Well, it was a long transition. I started in 2009 and we finally got to the Paralympics in 2012. But hours, choices, not sacrifices. You know, people say that you make sacrifices in order to be an elite athlete. It's like, no, you don't make sacrifices. Your family make the sacrifices. My husband, Nick, my mum, my sister, they all made the sacrifices. They were the ones looking after Oscar. But I worked and worked and worked. But I had to leave Oscar when he was six months old and I'd go off for three weeks. I missed his first birthday. And that was tough. That was really, really tough. And it sounds like I'm an awful mum as a result of that. No, it sounds like you're a massive inspiration to your child is what it sounds like. And to be fair, I saw him on Zoom that day. Not Zoom. Zoom wasn't around then. It's probably FaceTime. And to be fair, who's more interested in cheese and ham sandwich than talking to his mum in America? You know, the funny aside is there were so many days where I couldn't take the emotional guilt that I had. The emotional guilt of just having a baby and then disappearing for three days a week. Or not disappearing for three days a week and doing 120 miles a day or sometimes 200 miles a day in order to get to training, in order for me to come home and see Oscar that night and probably stay up most of the night because he was teething and things like that, and then doing it again. It did get tough, but I believe that the resilience and the strength that it's given me. But I do feel like you can't make it up sometimes, that journey, because the memory that I will have always, well, there's two memories really, is amazing memories from that time, but one which was the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. That was such a special night. And it was a special night because it reminded me of something that I call Team Me and that's such an important, integral part of who I am and who everyone is. And we all have a Team Me and we're part of many people's Team Me's. And that's what we need to remember. We, we, we may only have one Team Me, but we're part of, of many, many people's Team Me's. And my Team Me is obviously made up of my family, my friends and my physio and all those emergency services people. So that night really reminded me that I would never, ever have survived at that point, seven years after the bombings, if it wasn't for that Team Me. So that was just a, a sort of achievement that we all did together. But it, the emotional bit was our first game at the Excel Arena. I laugh at this because we are the first ever women's GB sitting volleyball team to be put together. And biggest crowd we'd ever played to at that point was probably about 400 people in Holland. So we were now coming out of the Excel Arena in front of about 4,000 people. <laughs> and a huge mix of emotions. I couldn't wait to come out. Really nervous. And I wish I could show you it, Elizabeth. The picture is actually behind me. It's in my hallway. It is my screensaver. This is my family. I saw my I saw banners everywhere with Martine and people shouting. But I saw my team me. And I saw this image that I had in my head on those days where I thought, you know, I'm not going to take anymore. I'm going to give this up. And that image was Oscar. 
I knew he was going to be three years old at the Paralympics. And I had an image of him, with one of those really rubbish plastic Union Jack flags. And that morning I came out of this tunnel and I looked over to my left and there's my family. And Oscar was on Nick's head with a little plastic Union Jack and he had a massive banner saying, go, mummy, go. And I knew that all the blood, sweat and tears had all been worth it. And you know what? It was such an amazing opportunity, a moment to say thank you, to say, mum, dad, brother, sister, whoever, friends, I'm a product of the love and support that you have given me over this last seven years. And I know that we've been through tough times. I know that. But look what we've achieved. Look what an amazing day, amazing experience that we have achieved. And it's that we, because I would never have made that journey if it wasn't for them. And I don't know, it was just an opportunity to say, it's okay. I'm okay. We're going to be okay. Life is good. The question that we need to ask is, we may not know what happens to us in life. We may not know our journey until it hits us what's going to happen in life. And it's not what happens in life that makes a difference. It's what we do. It's what you do with what happens to you in life. It's not what happens to you that makes the difference. It's what you do with what happens to you that makes the difference. Yeah. Love it. It's how we respond. Let's get on to your third and final failure which is another really interesting one I'm so glad you've chosen it and as you put it it's a failure to have another child a sibling for Oscar and you then say it's a story of you can't have everything you want but a lesson in appreciating what you've got which I just think is so resonant for so many so tell us a bit about that yeah so at the time I didn't really share with a lot of people that we actually went through this but yeah obviously we had Oscar in 2009 and then the Paralympics happened in 2012 and it, that was a tough tough journey as as you said I mean many people have many tough journeys it was just tough emotionally physically with Oscar and, and Nick supporting me it was really tough so when the end of the Paralympics came around I was 40 at that point I had my 40th birthday party and life was sort of kicking off after the Paralympics. So my career as an inspirational speaker was taking off. I and mean, as I said, Elizabeth, do quite like talking. <laughs> and you're very inspirational. So yes. it's the perfect job for you. <laughs> but there was something in the back of my head to say a big, big thing for me is family. Massive with family. And especially, you know, with what we've all been through. So right after the Paralympics, it was, you know, do we want another child now? No, no. And I think like many people, you leave it. And then a few years later, after the Paralympics, we started to talk about it. And I, at that point, was 43. So we knew that it was going to have to involve some IVF. We actually looked into adoption as well. And again, not many people know that. I'm probably saying that for the first time now. But we were worried that if it didn't work out, it would have a negative effect on Oscar. So this is where we went down the IVF route. And before that, we didn't get down the IVF route. I had an operation to get rid of a polyp. And then three months later, so this was in 2015, three months later, I became pregnant. And it was such a shock. That, that amazing shock, obviously. Beautiful shock. 
and we couldn't quite believe it. And our, my surgeon said, you know, this, this is what happens sometimes when you, you know, have a polyp and after you sometimes get pregnant. So we didn't tell anyone for the first two months, like many people. And then I was going to Dubai. I was going on a girly sort of few days to Dubai. So we had a family meal. We decided to tell everyone a week before I was going to Dubai because that was a week before we were three months past. Told everyone, everyone's elated. Again, you know, I'm not being funny, but when you have a daughter that has lost both her legs and, you know, a surgeon very 15 years ago, so you don't really know whether she's going to be able to have kids or not, you know, from the explosion and what the trauma of her organs have gone through and blah, blah, blah. So I became pregnant again. And then the night before I was due to go to Dubai, we booked an early scan and we went there and the lady said, we can't detect a heartbeat. Oh, Martine. And I had never been in that situation before and I think there's probably couples out there that have experienced this and, and it, it was a private clinic. So they sort of said, well, it's not conclusive. I think you need to go back to your midwife and go to the hospital and... So what are you saying? Are you saying that the fetus is dead or, well, we can't really tell you that or we know that we can't sort of hear a heartbeat. So I then went to Dubai that next morning with the girls and I had to explain to them that I didn't know whether I was pregnant or not. I didn't know whether I'd lost the baby at that point or whether I was pregnant. So I spent the next four days in Dubai, thankfully with my best buddies, but obviously not wanting to be there really and then I came back and they did confirm that I'd lost the baby and then after that we decided to have IVF we had one round of IVF and that didn't work I think it just makes you appreciate what well, everything makes you appreciate I mean you know I have friends that are not with partners have not had children and they will make the most wonderful mothers I mean they're brilliant aunties we're all lucky to have them as <laughs> aunties for Oscar but when you go to something like that and, you know, life does sometimes not work out the way that you think it's going to work out. And even though the heartache that that caused us and the pain that that caused us, on the flip side of that, I think it just makes you appreciate, be grateful, be of what you've got. And we've got a wonderful, charismatic son that says, Mum, I might look like dead, but I'm like you on the insides. He thinks he's cockney. He makes me laugh. But we have a beautiful, beautiful son. We now have a daisy that we thought we might have that was a little girl, but is slightly hairier, a black Labrador called Daisy. All you've got to do is turn on the TV and look at the world that we live in. People go through awful things every day of their lives. And we don't. We've been through a hard time for a few years. And now I believe our life is so much more enriched and our relationship so much more enriched because of such a, a negative thing that we all went through. The understanding that we have as a family now, a deep understanding, we still have arguments like families do, but that deep understanding that is as a result of going through that hugely traumatic time. I've only recently explained that to Oscar, why he hasn't got brothers and sisters. I've recently explained that. I love that you've explained it to him. I so appreciate you talking about this and I have been through something extremely similar. I've had three miscarriages and the first one of those was at three months and exactly the same thing happened. They had detected a heartbeat, then they couldn't detect a heartbeat. And so I know a little bit of what that's like, of how mm. strange it is to have a loss 
within you that you're carrying within you yeah. that no one can fully confirm and it's a very difficult headspace to be in and my heart goes out to you for that and I also really respect and appreciate not only that you're talking to me about it but that you explain that to Oscar yeah. I think that's a really beautiful thing to tell your 11 year old you know mommy and daddy tried and it didn't work out for us and we're so lucky we have you exactly and that's what it is it's it's finishing that sentence off with that we're so lucky to have you we did try we did do this but it doesn't matter because we've got an amazing family i mean my nieces and nephews i've got three mother's days cards the other day i've only got one child <laughs> yes um, i got loads i got lovely texts and a godmother's day card and it was just i started to feel a bit guilty i was like I'm, I'm, i feel like i'm distracting attention from the mothers <laughs> <laughs> you've got a role to play love you've got a role to play no and that's what the modern world is about. We have family and friends. Yeah. We have many, many friends that we go on holiday with. And it is all about the way that you explain it. Sorry, I must say, Elizabeth, I can't imagine going through that experience three times. Oh, thank you, Martine. You're so kind. But um, I, I, like you, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to you because you're bloody amazing. But <laughs> you can be amazing like as well. No, you're more amazing. I'm sometimes asked about failure and grief and sadness. And what if you just want to wallow in what you've lost? And I can understand that impulse. And I, and sometimes things do take a while to process and you need to allow yourself that time. But you do not have to live in a place of sadness. Something kind of caused you pain and sadness, but you don't have to keep living there and keep reliving it every single day. And I think that that's what I'm hearing from you in such an empowering way is that these things happened to you and mm. you made choices, not sacrifices. I love that phrase. Mm. To live a life that wasn't reliving that pain, to live a life that went beyond that Mm. and took you on this incredible journey. And I just look at you and think you are a superhero yeah. for, for that for that very reason. <laughs> I'm just me. <laughs> That's the way that I explain what happened to me. Because obviously I have small children come up to me and, and stare at me and things like that. And I believe it's my, we need to have a conversation about it. So I'm not scared about going up to children and saying, you're, you're looking at my legs. Are you looking at my wheels? You know, I remember this little boy last year, actually, the last holiday we went on. Remember them? The little boy come up to me and he was staring at me for about three hours before and going to his dad and asking questions. And anyway, he must have been such a little confident little boy, but only, only five or something, six. And he came out and he said, excuse me, what happened to your legs? And I went, oh, well, what happened was I was in a bit of an accident. Obviously, I'd have to ask mums and dads to tell him it was a bomber. So I said, well, I ha had an accident. So doctors had to take my legs away. And I never stop it at that. I always say, but do you know what? I've got robot legs. I've got robot legs that I plug in at home. And do you know what? I took part in the Paralympics. It's explaining that I suppose bad things do sometimes happen. But look, trying to end off you know, with a positive. And I suppose that's my whole outlook on life. There's no point if you cannot be miserable, don't be miserable. Be happy, be positive and have that belief, that belief that amazing things can come happen out of the most unexpected places. The worst experiences that you have, 
And so I suppose, yeah, the way that you explain it is the way that I always explain to everyone. This is what happened, but look what my life has done. Look what I've achieved. Look what anyone can do this. Oh, Martine Wright, what an amazing place to end on. You have been such an incredible guest. I've run out of words. I really have. You've moved me to tears, but you've left me feeling so just excited by life and look at what happened to you and look at who you are right now I think that is the message to go away with and I cannot thank you enough Martin Wright MBE Paralympian mother of one and superhero all-round superhero Martin Wright thank you for coming on How to Fail thank you ever so much pleasure This episode of How to Fail is sponsored by Sweaty Betty. Sweaty Betty makes activewear designed by women for women. And you can really, really tell. It is no coincidence that for my mother's last birthday, I got her a beautiful sweatshirt from Sweaty Betty, which had pockets in all the right places. And as you will know, as a woman, if you're listening to this and you're a woman, not many clothes have pockets where you need them. But Sweaty Betty leggings, one of the things that I love about them is the side pocket that you can slip your phone into if you're doing a workout or if you're just going about your day. My particular favourite product from Sweaty Betty are their power leggings. Their power leggings make me feel really held and safe and also motivated to work out because they're so comfortable to wear. They're made out of this buttery soft fabric with sweat wicking and those legendary side pockets. They're also high-waisted. You can wear them all day. They're super flattering and it feels like you're just slipping into a second skin. You can get 20% off all Sweaty Betty items, if you head to their website, sweatybetty.com, and at checkout, put in the code how to fail. That's how to fail, all one word, at checkout for 20% off. Thank you very much to Sweaty Betty. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.